the first time in quite a while. My name is Kate, and this is Surviving Justice, the realities of reporting rape. And it's been a little while, and what this is that's happening here is a mini-series that talks about preventing sexual violence in the United States and maybe a little bit abroad, too. So thank you so much for um, listening to this, and I hope that it's full of some information that will be useful, and the setup is going to be a little bit different. There's some exciting guests. It's going to be a quick, short series, and then after that, I'm excited to announce that I'll be launching a program called Follow Up. It's going to be kind of like a never-ending season three of the surviving justice and it will talk about different issues surrounding that so that's coming up but first i'm so excited to dive into this mini series around prevention um what's being done how much more needs to be done and to talk to some people and experts who are doing their part to end sexual violence whether that be through programs policies and research to begin with if you're unsure about why preventing sexual violence is such a critical issue, I would definitely encourage you to go back and listen to season one. But more likely than not, if you're here, it's because sexual violence has impacted you in some way, impacted your family or somebody that you care about or your community in some way. And you probably also have already listened to season one. So I'm really excited to jump into this little mini season two. For a quick recap, we discovered a lot about the criminal system and what that's like in reporting and um, the fact that officers aren't trained as a common practice, that the system is actively harmful to most victims who go and tell their story, that nearly no reports of sexual violence are ever actually prosecuted, and for a lot of people, they don't report because what the criminal system has to offer doesn't line up with their goals. So that leaves us with a question of how do we find healing and how do we break away from having to use these systems in the first place? Rather than focusing everything on punishment after the fact, how can we prevent this before the fact? And given that I am in public health and given that none of the options available to me were things that really aligned with my goals as a survivor. And that's so true for so many other survivors. I thought this would be a great time to be focusing on prevention and all the great work that people are doing so far, plus the reasons why it's just not more really prioritized in our society is something that we need to pay attention to. And throughout this mini-series, you're going to be hearing from some people who may be familiar names to you. So I had the Um, Very fortunate opportunity to interview Brenda Tracy, who has a great program, um, Set the Expectation, and has been doing amazing work in this field. I also got to speak with uh, Coach Kip Ione, who is also doing amazing things with teams of men um, and doing great work in kind of addressing masculinity head on. I'll also be speaking with Mike Domish who is an activist, a speaker, and an author um, who has done a lot of work around consent and... um, is really just a great advocate for ensuring consent in relationships. And I'll also be speaking with an up-and-coming researcher and a few other people as well. So um, before we get into any of those, I wanted this first episode to focus mostly on and just be a really brief introduction to what is available right now as a general whole in the United States for sexual violence prevention. What do we already know? 
In the United States, the Violence Against Women Act, which many of you may be familiar with as it's in the news quite frequently and actually does pretty much have bipartisan support, despite what you may have heard the past couple of years, um, the Violence Against Women Act has funding for most criminal situations um, and especially ones that deal with domestic violence and sexual violence. And a lot of that money does go primarily towards domestic violence programming. There's a little bit less of an emphasis on sexual violence programming and services and things like that. Um, and honestly, the smallest chunk of change from that whole entire program goes into prevention. So prevention and funding for prevention is allocated through the CDC, so the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. So to further back up and give just like a minor breakdown of how funding works in general under the Violence Against Women Act, here's a little bit more information about that. So first, there's the Department of Justice, which is kind of the umbrella for everything. And then under that, there's the Office of Violence Against Women. And the Office on Violence Against Women administers 19 different grants to every single state and territory. Funding for all of this has been unfortunately dropping off throughout the years, and hopefully it's something that under a new administration will be getting a little bit more money. One thing that I personally find concerning about this is that a lot of the programs are directly tied with criminal systems, given that it's all administered under the Department of Justice. But it's still um, sometimes flexible grants and things that can be used to help people who do not wish to interact with the criminal system and survivors who still need help in some other way. So just a little overview about that. So where prevention funding comes in on this is that under the Violence Against Women Act, um, primarily the Office on Violence Against Women administers the majority of um, VAWA-authorized programs. However, there are a few other federal agencies that also have a hand in that, and one of those is the CDC. CDC is, in its name, mostly focused on prevention. And there's also a few more that go through the Office of Justice programs, but those aren't truly relevant to this podcast. So we're going to focus on those CDC grants. The CDC does a few different things with these grants, and they have the ability to do a lot. Um, the money that they receive goes into a program specifically called the Rape Prevention and Education Program. So again, focus is mostly on prevention, education, and awareness. This program receives $42 million to divide between 50 states and 8 territories. So while it sounds like it might be a lot, it's actually really not that much when you divide it into all of those different states and territories. And the fact that this particular program is so underfunded is unsurprising when you consider any kind of healthcare or any kind of public health program within the U.S. Public health has always been underfunded in a lot of different ways, and we're typically focusing on tertiary and secondary care. Things like screening, things like testing, things like treating. We typically have not had a great track record with prevention of any kind of health crisis, and that includes sexual violence and the epidemic that it is. That does not, however, mean that there isn't great work coming out of that. For instance, they do different prevalence surveys, youth violence surveys. There's a lot of information that gets gathered within the Rape Prevention Education Program. So it's a really critical program. It's just a, you know, just a touch underfunded and something that we could definitely be putting a little bit more of our energy into. So coming from a completely federal governmental level, 
that's basically all there really is that's focusing on education. That's the funding, that's the program, and on a federal level, that's pretty much all that anybody can expect to get and have trickle down to state or local levels. If that sounds concerning to you, it should. We should definitely have more of a focus on prevention. Um, But even given the limited resources that are available under this, um, there are some really good things to come out of it. So recently, researchers awarded with funds from this program have done some really interesting research that's found some really good results in terms of things that can be done in order to prevent sexual violence. The CDC made a guide about this. And the findings are presented in a report that you can Google and look up for yourself. It's called Stop SV, a technical package to prevent sexual violence. And the Stop SV is an acronym. And what that stands for is really critical. It comes out of essentially the things that they have found are actually evidence-based and have been found in research to be things that look like a promising strategy and approach to be able to stop sexual violence in the U.S. So let's get into that a little bit more. Under this package and under this approach, they have identified through the evidence that's available from research done as it is right now, five different strategies. So um, even though the acronym gets a little bit of kind of like poetic license here, to say the least, um, the first one that they talk about is promoting social norms that protect against violence. And this is incredibly important. The different approaches that they use are bystander approaches, which have been found to be effective and empowering to bystanders to be able to intervene, and also mobilizing men and boys as allies. As we know, it's really no surprise to any of us that although there are certainly female perpetrators of sexual violence, and it's not any less horrible than it is when it's a male perpetrator, the predominant aggressors of sexual violence are males. So engaging men and boys in this issue and having them be empowered to step in, um, recognize sexual violence for what it is, and be able to stop it is really critical. Um, As Brenda Tracy says, who will be featured in a future episode, she truly believes that men and boys are the solution. They're not just the problem, and it's so important to see them that way. The second strategy that they take is to teach skills to prevent sexual violence. So that includes a lot of things that can be done um, in a lot of different ways. Um, They take the approaches of, first of all, social-emotional learning. Secondly, teaching healthy, safe dating and intimate relationship skills to adolescents. Third, promoting healthy sexuality. And fourth, empowerment-based training. And these have all been um, found to be approaches that are useful based on different studies that have been done. So these do have evidence behind them as something that is helpful and that works. And I will talk about a couple of these studies, but I won't be able to get into all of them. So if this does interest you, I highly recommend that you go online and I'll hopefully be able to post a link somewhere about um, this package and just to show that this is what's available currently in the U.S. So aside from promoting social norms and teaching skills to prevent sexual violence, the third strategy that they use is to provide opportunities to empower and support girls and women. And so this comes in terms of the approach of strengthening economic supports. So um, not just for women, but also for families, and then also strengthening leadership opportunities for girls. 
And I think that that is truly incredibly important. Um, do I think that it will completely end sexual violence all on its own? No, but I don't think any of these approaches alone will. I think it's important that we work towards all of them and use all the evidence that we can to further the things that help in general and hopefully cohesively establish some, some baseline where we can start to actually address this problem head on. But before I get too far down that road, the fourth strategy they have is to create protective environments. And this one was actually particularly interesting. I'd love to talk about this one a little bit more. So this was improving safety and monitoring in schools. And I believe that this was done in a high school, but the way that they did this and what they found about this was incredibly interesting. And I'll get into it a little bit more. Um, they also, and again, I'm quoting straight from this guide here. So pardon me while I just get through this, but they also um, use the approach of establishing and consistently applying workplace policies, which, you know, in my situation through Title IX would have been lovely. And also addressing community level risks through environmental approaches. Again, this one was so interesting to me and I'm excited to get a little more into it. And then the last thing was support victims and do things where survivors have lessened harm. So that means victim-centered services, which even from season one, we know is clear that it's completely lacking better treatment for victims of sexual violence, treatment for at-risk children and families to prevent problem behavior, including sex offending. This is so crucial and so forward-thinking. And um, even though things like having victim-centered services have been at the forefront and have been talked about for a really long time, I think that the having the foresight to think about um at-risk children who could um, sexually offend in the future, that's something that we don't talk about that much because who are perpetrators? And I actually have a guest, an up-and-coming researcher who will be talking about that in future episodes as well. One thing that you might notice from um, this episode in particular is that this is mostly just me talking, which I am very uncomfortable with and I prefer to have guests who are on the show, but just to kind of give a little bit of background information and considering this is sort of my wheelhouse as far as um, where I'm going with um, work and school and things like that, I just figured I would go ahead and start off the season the right way and then get back into having these like really amazing guests that um, can contribute so much more than I can to um, what's going on right now. But I think something that might be interesting that I can at least be able to lend my voice in as something that I've studied for quite a while now in the realm of public health is the different models that we use. And one of the biggest ones that we use is the social ecological model. And it sounds like a big word and I feel like funding sounds like a big thing and the way it works sounds like it's this big system and I feel like that's designed to make us feel like we don't understand it. But truthfully, we can understand it and I'm here to break down a model that is used frequently that is really simple to understand and it makes sense. So um, through the CDC and through the different approaches that they've realized that may be helpful in addressing sexual violence, they have tried to use the social ecological model to be able to find ways that we can prevent sexual violence at all levels. And by all levels within this model, that means working from being an individual to working to where you are in a society. So individually, there's a couple different steps here. Um, depending on what model you use, the CDC uses four. So I'm going to go ahead and go off of that. There's your individual level. 
right? So the things that you uniquely bring to the table, like your learning attitudes, behaviors, um, the way that you support equality and respect, those internal things that you have, that's at the center of that. The next level out is your relationships. So that's where things like bystander intervention training can come in handy. So um, the way that we have relationships with other people is hugely important in the way that we behave and hugely important in the way that we may act um, as a result of what we think other people around us find acceptable or find normal, things like that. And then kind of growing off of that, even outside of just relationships, the community. How does the community see things? Um, what kind of social marketing campaigns are involved in addressing sexual violence? Have you seen any? I don't know if I've ever seen a community-level sexual violence prevention marketing strategy ever employed. Additionally, there's this idea, and again, I'm going to get back to this with one of these studies, but identifying hotspots in unsafe areas on campuses in specific places within specific communities that could be monitored to increase safety. Um, when it comes to sexual violence. And then lastly, on the outer layer, you have your society. So the societal layer, um, those are the things and the rules that we are born into and that we live in. So um, those things promote social norms, policies, laws. Um, they support a lot of different things, and it's also the driver behind a lot of different things. And I think the thing that I really love about the social ecological model is the fact that no matter what, all of those things are things that can change. We can change the way that we acknowledge things and behave. We can change the way we relate to others who that might in turn change the way they behave. We can change the way we interact with our communities and we can, I truly would love to believe and I know it's true because society changes over time. It's just what happens. I believe that we can affect change on a societal level. Um, so as far as sexual violence goes, those are sort of the four layers that we have to think about when we're kind of from a public health standpoint attacking this problem of how do we prevent sexual violence from occurring right now and into the future. The kind of depressing thing, I guess, is that um, we're at a point with these studies, even the ones that have shown to be effective in some capacity, that they haven't been replicated, they haven't been done with different populations, so some that may have worked in high school, who knows if they'll work in college populations, things like that. They're very limited at this point in time. The positive thing is that if we continue to fund programs like this, and even if we have a great push to put more money and funding towards things like this, we could find out a lot more a lot sooner. Um, and so it's the beginning of something that is really important. And that's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time prefacing this whole entire prevention series with what we already know. For things like bringing in the bystander, we've seen different things work out like um, the Safe Bars Alliance where bartenders are trained to intervene when it looks like somebody is uncomfortable or in a situation where they're unsafe. That's just one small example. And as far as mobilizing men and boys as allies, this is totally where I see Kip Ione and his program for teams of men really coming into play. Being somebody who really encourages men to be people who do not only not perpetrate sexual violence, but people who are actively working on themselves and making sure that what they bring to the table is the best possible version of who they are as a man who they can be as a partner, and who they can be in society. Um, his program is truly so phenomenal, and I would love for 
it to be formally evaluated because I truly believe that it would meet some CDC guidelines and bringing us further in understanding um, better everything that has to do with rape prevention and rape education, especially um, within the population that he works with. Quick side note, I'm so sorry for my voice. Once again, I have a cold. Um, I never don't have a cold apparently anymore. (laughs) I don't think it's COVID because I already had that, which is a story for another day, but let us continue. And honestly, for today, there's not a whole lot more that I want to say. I just really want to give an overview of what kind of funding we have in the U.S., what kind of research is getting funded. So it's typically the research that's funded under this um, rape prevention and education program from the CDC, which again is basically like the only thing unless some kind of university has a grant through something else. Like it's not the only way that anything having to do with sexual violence prevention research is funded in this country, but um, it's definitely the biggest and probably most accessible way. And it's also really interesting to know that all of those funds are actually dispersed through health departments. So to be able to get your hands on those funds is a whole other process too. So um, this doesn't completely count things that are like individuals doing research from different universities or reaching out for other similar grants or something like that, that, um, might fall under a different kind of umbrella. So, for example, some sexual violence researchers might be looking at the intersection of trauma and addiction. So they could apply for um, a grant that has to do more with addiction and things like that. So it's not like this is like the absolute only thing that's happening. But um, as far as the framework of how our country sees rape prevention and education and the way that we fund it and the way that we research it, this is really the umbrella that we go under, which I think is important not only to understand um, how it works as a general whole in the country, but also for a couple other reasons. First of all, it sets up everything for the rest of this little mini-series. So I'll be speaking with people who are working um, to do this kind of research and to make educational programs that work on each of these levels. So each of those levels in that social ecological model are things that you can't tackle generally all at the same time with one single program. So there might be somebody that's going to be on this podcast who's working on individuals um, and research with individuals. And then there might be another who's working on them with bystander things. Um, so you'll definitely hear some of that. And then some of those community interventions, as well as the bigger kind of societal overarching interventions as well. And I think that's pretty much where I want to wrap things up today, but I just want you to know that that's what's coming. That's the framework that it's all under. And that is how we get things done in public health in the United States that is unfortunately severely underfunded, but definitely I have faith that hopefully after a year of a pandemic where, you know, prevention work would have been critical had it been funded earlier, um, maybe there will be more emphasis on funding in the future. Um, but until then, I'm so excited to share the future guests and everything that we've been able to talk about, all the wonderful work that they're doing. And I would also love to hear from you. If you know of any, even just like really small kind of like marketing campaigns, like thinking about things going on on your campus, um, thinking about things that you've ever seen in your community that are specifically related to preventing sexual violence, what those things look like. I would just be really interested to hear about them. 
And if you're interested in participating in any future episodes after this mini series, please also feel free to reach out. You can still reach me at survivingjusticepodcast at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram. So thanks for listening and thanks for sticking with me after all this time. And I'm really excited to share the rest of this with you as we go on. And very last thing, first of all, to give credit where credit is due and also just to help you out in case you're having trouble kind of like, or if you're a visual learner like me who just needs to see things rather than hear them, um, to find a little bit more about what I'm talking about, I definitely recommend her going to the um, CDC website and just looking up, if you just type into Google, stop SB CDC probably one of the top things if not the top thing that's going to pop up is their technical report and I would totally take some time to look through that look through prevention strategies take a minute to look at some of the research that's been done it gives really nice little small summaries about the research that people have been doing that has been shown to be evidence-based as being able to make some changes in behavior um, make some changes in communities and reduce sexual violence or um, thoughts of sexual violence to some extent and same thing with the um, social ecological model if you google it you'll be able to find it if you want to find something particular to sexual violence and the social ecological model i definitely would also recommend going to the cdc's website and just checking out how they use that so um yeah I suppose that's it, and I will see you when we get back to normal doing some um, interviews with some really great people coming up next week. Thanks.